investors to the Absolute Return Podcast, your source for stock market analysis, global macro musings, and hedge fund investment strategies. Your hosts, Julian Klamachko and Michael Kesslering, aim to bring you the knowledge and analysis you need to become a more intelligent and wealthier investor. This episode is brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. Welcome, ladies and gents, to episode 60 of the Absolute Return Podcast. I'm your host, Julian Klamachko. And I'm Mike Kessling. Today is Friday, March 27th, 2020. So we're right in the thick of all things Corona. COVID-19 obviously having a massive effect on markets, the economy, and just people's lives. Here we are uh, working from home, recording this from my uh, new home podcast studio. But it's working well so far. We've got a number of things that we want to touch on this week in terms of things happening in the markets and the economy. Off the top, a record 3.3 million U.S. workers filed for unemployment benefits as Canadian jobless claims soar close to 1 million. Should investors be worried about these horrific economic numbers? The U.S. government approved a historic $2 trillion stimulus package. What's in it? And is it going to work? Going to chat about some M&A. Yeah, some deals are still happening in this environment. Endeavor announced the acquisition of Semifo in a $1 billion gold mining deal. Has the coronavirus affected M&A? Lastly, we're going to finish it up with a discussion on the paradox of choice. What to do when it rains gold. We're going to talk to, talk to investors about where to invest in the current market environment. But I mean, the economic numbers that are coming out right now, it certainly is scary. Nearly 3.3 million Americans filed for unemployment benefits last week. Businesses shut down across the country really just to halt the spread of COVID-19. That's what all of this massive economic disruption is about. And to put this 3.3 million job loss into perspective... Jobless claims increased by 3 million from the week before. So prior to this, there are 200-something-odd thousand claims, up to 3 million. And this weekly increase exceeded the previous record set in 1982, so almost 40 years ago, by nearly five-fold. So if you look at a chart, this is just a massive, massive spike in unemployment. Claim. Now, some numbers out of the St. Louis Federal Reserve, the economists there estimate that 52.8 million Americans could be unemployed by next quarter. That represents over 32% of the labor force. A ninefold increase in joblessness uh, previous to this whole uh, coronavirus outbreak, the unemployment rate was about 3.5% in the U.S. So if we saw uh, a spike to north of 30%, however temporary, it is just a massive, massive economic disruption that's affecting everyone, nearly everyone globally. But, you know, talking about what has happened historically, uh, this massive jump, it really put an end to this streak that was going on for over a decade of the U.S. economy really having this Goldilocks period where adding jobs month in, month out, a record 113 straight months of job growth for the U.S., basically from 2009 to 2020, where we saw payrolls grow by 22 million. So certainly one of the best economic periods, best periods of prosperity in history coming to a sudden halt with this whole coronavirus pandemic as many U.S. businesses announced layoffs. Several state and local authorities ordered non-essential businesses to close in response to the corona coronavirus pandemic. And what we saw in Canada, too, nearly 1 million Canadians applied for unemployment benefits last week. Now, that represents a stunning 
5% of the workforce. The previous record for an entire month was 500,000 in 1957. And ironically, if we look at the market action when these horrific jobs numbers came out, uh, clearly the market was expecting something far worse because the S&P 500 went up 6.2% for the day that was on uh, on Wednesday when this news broke. And on the Dow Jones, this was the, its biggest one-day gain since 1933. We're talking about nearly 100 years. And this week, we actually, uh, in contrast to what's been happening for the past five years of just investors having to suffer day in, day out losses in the market, seemingly day after day of nothing but red, we actually had three up days in a row this week, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, making for the best three-day change in the Dow since 19. 31. So a lot of craziness, just a ton of volatility in the markets and in the economy. What are your thoughts on what's going to happen like with respect to these jobless claims? Do you think investors should be worried about it or is it just going to be temporary? Well, I mean, it, it, it's worrying in the sense that that many people are out of work. Obviously, that's a huge impact on the real economy when you separate that from financial markets. Now, what's interesting, and we're going to be talking about it in the next section, but what's interesting about these numbers is that they're likely to kind of remain at, remain at elevated levels just because the the U.S. stimulus package that they're bringing in will actually is looking to allow uh, gig economy workers to obtain unemployment benefits. So you'll see uh, areas uh, such as that that will be applying for these benefits as well. But I mean, in the short term, this this was expected. It's really just a matter of, and I guess where the market is being made um, in terms of pricing equities, especially as well as fixed income. I was actually surprised. Is, I thought the U.S numbers would be quite a bit worse, just given uh, the Canadian numbers, the nearly 1 million jobless claims in Canada came out before. So, uh, you know, if you're comparing that analog to the US, that would that would uh, indicate up to 10 million. And you saw whisper numbers, so-called whisper numbers, or, you know, analyst forecasts, uh, 5 to 10 million. So perhaps the market is a bit of a relief rally, perhaps some short covering, who knows? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, at the end of the day, so this, like you had mentioned, uh, the best three-day run um, since the 90s, as well as for on a week-over-week basis, this is the uh, the S&P being up 10% this week. It's its best week since March of 2009. But in the context of, you know, you did have some selling into close today on Friday here um, with the S&P down uh, 2.75% and the TSX down just over 5%. You know, if you're looking at it on a holistic basis, the S&P is still down 25% from its uh, February peak. So this has been a relief. Um, Whether it is sustainable will probably rely on what the market makes of some of these fiscal measures, as well as if they continue to to announce these fiscal measures and, and bring them as as the economy worsens. I mean, you did mention the one uh, the one chart, and I believe that was from the St. Louis Fed that the Wall Street Journal showed of uh, the jobless claims. And it, I really encourage our listeners to take a look at, at the chart as it, it, it was uh, tweeted out. I believe I retweeted it today. Uh, but it, it's just crazy to look at. I mean, you have everything uh, in, in the lower part of the graph, and it's just a massive spike uh that's that's just crazy to see in in graphic form but yeah long story short i it's it's really difficult to uh 
to take read too much into these jobless claims currently, as uh, this is going to be evolving, you know, in a in a very real way over the next couple of months. Yeah, investors really need to understand that the economic data is bad. It'll continue to be bad. In fact, it'll probably get worse in the short term. So just accept the fact that the numbers will be bad uh, for the next quarter or so. Uh, you can definitely affect, uh, expect the next kind of couple months in which we see pretty horrific uh, economic numbers as we did this week. So look for that to continue as we go through this troubling economic period and this sort of health crisis that you got to remember, it's just going to be temporary. You know, um, pandemics typically last a few months. Seems like we were starting to get uh, our, the handle on coronavirus outbreaks in certain jurisdictions, certainly not yet in North America. However, just looking at the data, you got to remember, and this is an important fact, that markets always bottom well before the data does. We saw that in 2009, you know, on previous uh, brutal bear markets. And as you indicated, uh, indices down 25 to 30% fully recognizing a tough slog in the near term. However, um, you know, investors shouldn't be too worried. I saw an interesting data point that looks at uh, previous recessions and the concurrent market drawdown. Clearly, we are in a set recession. There's no arguing against that. But it's important for investors to know that historically, by the time the officials, the economists uh, officially uh, recognize it as a recession, it's likely over. And by the time the recession is over, stocks are already up on average 50%. That's five zero percent And if we talk about a 50% rally, that's representative of like five to 10 years of market gain. So it's important to be invested, right? You know, trying to stay in cash and pick the bottom. You're never going to perfectly time it. And so that's something to keep in mind if you're waiting for the data to improve. You've missed the bottom by a significant double digit percentage, uh, which is highly likely. But as you indicated, Mike, the markets are highly reliant on the the massive amount of uh, monetary stimulus, which we touched on last week, and this new historic $2 trillion fiscal stimulus package uh, signed by the U.S. government today. So basically what happened uh, in response to this massive economic fallout caused by coronavirus, U.S. Congress approved a landmark $2 trillion stimulus package really aimed at aiding individuals and businesses businesses through this bit of a rough patch that we're having here. Clearly, the focus of everyone should be on staying safe, staying healthy, uh, self-isolating, uh, quarantining, whatever it, uh, whatever it has to be, just such that we're not spreading the coronavirus we're not overloading uh, the healthcare system. Uh, we're not making more and more people sick. So that's really the number one priority. But to make that happen, we need to make a temporary economic sacrifice. And that's where the stimulus package comes in to sort of make up for that. It had overwhelming bipartisan support for this legislation. The vote was unanimous at 96 to 0. I don't know uh, if we've ever had that before. I certainly can't recall. Now, to get into some details, this uh, $2 trillion stimulus stimulus plan and involves so-called helicopter money. That's right, direct payment uh, to Americans. Individuals will get... Uh, $1,200 for each adult, 500 bucks per child, married couples getting $3,400. Payments are phased out for higher income earners. Uh, IRS indicated that they could start issuing payments within three weeks. How uh, additional 
payments going out. So those payments in individuals account for about $300 billion. There's an additional $454 billion in loans to businesses, $350 billion in loans to small businesses, $250 billion in unemployment insurance, $221 billion in tax deferrals, $150 billion in aids to states, $300 billion as an airline company bailout, in addition to uh, hundreds of billions to other stakeholders. Now, before we go on to the next topic, I wanted to mention that the size of this $2 trillion fiscal stimulus package, unprecedented. It represents 9.3% of GDP. Uh, if we look to the last big bailout, uh, that was in 2008, where the fiscal package, fiscal stimulus package there was 5.5% of GDP. So on a relative basis, this $2 trillion aid package is nearly double that of the Great Recession, uh, the fiscal stimulus package put together back in 2008. Now, the government recognizing that more than two-thirds of the cash payments will go to households in the bottom three income quintiles, but perhaps that's why we've had quite a bounce off the lows in the markets. Uh, you saw as of yesterday, the Dow and the TSX were both uh, 20% off the lows. So I'm calling it a new bull market. I'm not so sure. What are your thoughts on it here? Do you think that this stimulus package is going to work to get us through this rough patch? Uh, it's definitely, as you mentioned, it's unprecedented. What's, what else? I mean, today the, the news did keep coming as Trump, the most recent news is that Trump has ordered GM to start making ventilators under a defense production law, um, which is very interesting. So, uh, you know, a Republican government, which, you know, in the U.S., the Republicans are very, you know, they do have libertarian aspects um, and, you know, free enterprise and whatnot. So this is a very interesting move by a Republican president coming in and ordering a private company to uh, shift their their focus of production, um, which is very interesting. You've seen that in some of the Asian economies, such as I believe South Korea and Singapore were quite active with measures like that. But you know, for the for the folks of some of our listeners that are more of a libertarian bent, um, probably not a fan of that. But this is drastic times. I did also just want to touch on the Canadian fiscal measures as well as the monetary measures from the Bank of Canada. Um, so on the fiscal side, there being $40,000 in interest-free loans from, from the banks to small and medium-sized enterprises uh, with $10,000 of that forgivable by the government as well as wage support. So an increase, what they had previously announced was a 10% wage subsidy for companies to ensure that they're not, that I guess, to incentivize them to lay off less workers or hopefully zero, um, but increasing that from 10% to 75%. Um, what I would add there is it will be interesting to see where the caps are as the previously announced deal of 10% had a cap per employee of around $1,400 and uh, $25,000 per company. So not quite as good as the headline would um, make it out, but still some relief for small, small and medium-sized enterprises, as well as there is additional funding now from, from the BDC, about 
$12.5 billion from the BDC and Export Development Canada uh, to help small businesses with their working capital. The other thing on the monetary side, uh, the Bank of Canada announcing um, emergency an emergency rate cut down to 25 basis points. And something that we briefly discussed, I posed the question to Julian last week, whether the Bank of Canada would look at quantitative easing here. And I guess the answer was yes, that they, they, they did uh, end up uh, they are now going to be purchasing a minimum of $5 billion per week of government securities and short-term corporate bonds. With no cap, um, unlimited the, quantitative easing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's it's very interesting, and it, it'll be interesting to see what that does to, to spreads, especially on the corporate side, like what proportion are they going to be buying of government versus uh, corporate bonds? It uh, remains to be seen, but it'll be really interesting to watch how that, that unfolds. Yeah, it's not as extreme as what they're doing in the US in which the Fed is actually going into the market and buying corporate bond ETFs which is certainly something that is unprecedented. So um, monetary policy continues to evolve and adapt to the, to the modern times. But really, all this fiscal stimulus, this monetary stimulus, the government is recognizing that you know, the economy is going through a rough patch for a limited amount of time, and they got to come in as a stopgap to really uh, smooth things over because you don't want all these companies firing everyone and going under. And meanwhile, we beat coronavirus by the summer, and there are no businesses for workers to go back to. So really, it's focused on keeping companies uh, solvent and being able to kind of reset everything once we get past this uh, pandemic, which shouldn't be too long. So, you know, it's certainly positive. And we, we saw it uh, in the markets this week, positive to know that uh, we have this sort of buyer of last resort that smooths things over and makes it easier for individuals and businesses to manage through this really, really tough time when we should really be focused on the health of society and, and keeping everyone safe. Uh, but wanted to touch on some, some M&A uh, what happened in the uh, mergers and acquisition space is that Endeavor Mining, Canadian-listed Endeavor Mining, they announced a friendly acquisition of Semapho for $1 billion bucks in a deal to create the largest gold producer in the uh, Burkina Faso and Ivory Coast regions of Africa. This will be a pretty big performa entity. It'll produce 1 million ounces of the yellow metal per year. This was an all-stock deal, no cash involved. It represented a nearly 55% premium uh, to, to the target's share price. And really, it's signaling to the market that corporations are still confident enough to announce transformative M&A during a period of market panic. Other interesting aspect of this deal is that the pro, pro forma company's cash position is going to be helped by a concurrent $100 million equity financing, a cash injection from Endeavor's top shareholder. This is private gold investment firm La Mancha. So you definitely still have investors being aggressive here, putting money to work in what is, and we're going to touch on this, a highly uh, opportunity-rich environment. Uh, Endeavor shareholders will own about 70% of the pro forma entity. Now, I really wanted to touch on the M&A market in general. I had a comment from global miner BHP this week. They said that they're in good shape to act if disruption from the virus brings M&A openings. Basically, large companies such as Endeavor, perhaps BHP, they are looking to be opportunistic. They are looking to you know, be counter-cyclical type 
buyers, be somewhat contrarian perhaps. Now, the target shares uh, in this transaction, they've got cut in half since the start of November. That really was caused by violence uh, in one of their mines in Burkina Faso, where a bunch of people were uh, attacked and killed, unfortunately. So Endeavor here really capitalizing on some perhaps temporary drama, being opportunistic. And that is a really good representation of what's going on in mergers and acquisitions. We've had this, you know, corona panic for the past month or so. And I see a lot of people concerns because they look, they uh, be concerned because they look at the uh, merger arbitrage spreads, which we've touched on uh, ad nauseum, just how they're ultra wide. Uh, you can have low risk, 20% annualized spreads, just amazing opportunities. People look at that, they say, oh, uh, all these deals are going to break. And if they don't break, they're going to be repriced downwards. But people not well versed in the M&A space, they tend to grossly overestimate how easy uh, or how they think it is easy for an acquirer to back out of a deal, which is extremely difficult. When you sign a definitive agreement, it's very, very hard to back out of the deal and it's very, very hard to reprice a deal. That's why historically over the past 10 years, we've only seen 1% of M&A transactions repriced downwards and 6% of M&A transactions break. Not saying that we won't see any of that. I just think that uh, market participants are overly sensitive to that at this point and what we look at, we want to look at actual facts and figures, not uh, fear and hearsay in the market. So if we look at facts, well, what has happened is over the past month, since this corona panic has a coronavirus panic has emerged, we've seen 12 deals announced. So perhaps uh, deal activity is down a bit, certainly from private equity buyers. They're nowhere to be found aside from that one KKR deal that we talked about last week and that uh, Cincinnati Bell deal. However, uh, private equity firms have um, you know been quiet just given they have their own problems. But nonetheless, 12 deals largely on the strategic side being announced and more importantly, 15 deals in North America have closed with zero broken deals so far. Certainly one on the ropes. That's uh, that Condor Hospitality deal, a small cap deal that was supposed to close this week and in fact did not. Perhaps the acquirer is having trouble coming up with the funds. It was an all cash deal. So that one's on the ropes, certainly price and looking to break. But zero official deal breaks, zero official repricing, 15 deals closed. And you're saying when these deals close, I made a comment today on or this week on social media on Twitter and LinkedIn, you look at Altagas Canada, rewind last week, this was a 10% gross spread. And the deal is closing, they got all approvals, it's closing on Monday or Tuesday right? So a 10% gross spread over a week is like a mind-blowing annualized return. It just goes to show you how dislocated uh, the merger arbitrage market, and it's just, uh, you know, incredibly fruitful. One of the incredibly fruitful markets to, that investors should be fishing in these days to harvest these massive discounts where you can really make a, you know, a quick buck, 10, 20% in a week or two. So it's pretty wild there. And I don't know, in my opinion, we're not seeing a massive effect on M&A. Are you seeing anything? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're you're still seeing definitive deals being announced in March here. So, you know, it, it's really not changing for the most part. Some of the acquirers that are, you know, strategic acquirers 
Um, as you had mentioned, some of the deals that involve financing risk, those become a little bit more tricky here in this environment. But as you know, definitely share deals as well as well, really any strategic deal, you know, are typically made with a lot more long term focus. On yeah, exactly. A lot of these um, deals are strategically long term, and they're not going to back away if something happens, that's going to affect the company for six weeks, eight weeks, right? Absolutely. Not even just financial considerations. There's a certain amount of ego that once a deal is announced, you know, there's there's human beings that are on the management team and they've already, you know, they've already had a definitive deal announced. You know, just the psychological aspect there of walking away is definitely something that needs to be considered as well. And in terms of, you know, you had mentioned the long-term uh, historical, the amount of the percentage of deals that actually break or get repriced downwards. Well, right now you're looking at about, the market is pricing in about 23% of deals breaking. And I had mentioned this last week as well. Both of us had mentioned this. I mean, it that is a very high number in terms of 23% of deals breaking. That would be a very historic amount. And so, you know, it likely to be a bit higher than the normal of uh, 6%, but really unlikely to approach the 23% bound. Um, as well, like in, a, in an environment like this, Julian, how does it affect your process of analyzing deals? You know, is there anything particular that you focus on during a downturn when looking at M&A deals on a, on a deal-by-deal basis? Yeah, I mean, uh, the easiest thing to consider that's uh, top of my list, given tightening financial conditions, is where's the money coming from? Do they have the cash on the on the balance sheet, or is, if it's a private equity firm, you know, do they have uh, that capital that's ready to go, or is it contingent on financing, or is it you know reliant on bank financing that has certain covenants that could be breached? You know, that's a big uh, topic of discussion on the Cineplex deal, where there's this covenant uh, in terms of um, you know their operations such that uh, you know they can't breach this certain uh, operating covenant from a financial perspective so certainly that's worthwhile considering is um, you know the financials of the target company and the acquiring company to make sure that they have the wherewithal to get through this tough period and that the acquirer has the capital to actually close the deal that's why in this environment share deals are uh, more palatable uh, you look at this endeavor, uh, this endeavor deal, and it is an all-share transaction. So those are less likely to break just because you know both companies' stocks will move with the market. So there really isn't as much price risk, and uh, you know they they typically don't involve any cash as an all-share deal. So certainly access to capital and and financing. And uh, financial performance is something to consider. You want to stay away from highly leveraged companies. You know those can be uh, can be a significant risk. Uh, highly cyclical companies as well. Uh, you see a distressed, highly distressed deal, which is Air Canada Transat. That one is looking rocky these days, just because uh, Transat <laughs> is an airline company and is effectively shut down for the time being. But what people need to consider. And this is really, really important is timeline. Uh, as we spoke about the Cineplex deal, people are like, well, that business is completely shut down. No one's going to movies. Movie theaters are closed. Well, yeah, that is what's happening right now. That's what's happening in March. However, uh, you look at the outside date or the termination date of some of these transactions uh, for Cineplex specifically, that's at the end of June. 
So there's three more months. Who knows what's going to happen in three months? Are things likely to be better? I mean, there's a good chance. And if you get to the that outside date, companies can always extend it. You look at Sprint and T-Mobile, you know, they've extended the out, outside date pretty significantly uh, where that deal was supp- supposed to close pretty much a year ago and it's been extended out a year. Can you forecast what's how the environment's going to be? In one year, well, there's a decent chance that it's going to be significantly better. Do you actually think coronavirus is going to be affecting us as badly as it is now in four, six, eight, ten, twelve months? So that's something to consider is that a lot of these merger agreements have a lot of time to work through this temporary blip that we're going through in the economy. The other major considerations is legal. As I said, these definitive agreements are airtight. People tend to say, oh, but what about the uh, material adverse change? Well, material adverse change is not going to allow you to walk from a deal. Number one, pretty much everyone you read will specifically carve out uh, an outbreak of illness or pandemic, epidemic. That means that it excludes something like the coronavirus, that you just can't bring it up because they've already considered it and thrown it out as a potential MAC or material adverse change. The other thing is that in terms of historical success in litigating in court on a MAC, a material adverse change, there's been one. In the history of all M&A, it's happened once. Uh, Fresenius got out of their acquisition of Acorn just because Acorn's business completely fell off a cliff. Meanwhile, it had nothing to do with the industry or the sector. If everyone in the market or everyone in the sector or, you know, everyone in the economy are suffering, then that's not a material adverse change to that company specifically. So that's something to consider legal. Legally, it's extremely difficult to wiggle out of these deals. And if you try to, I've seen times where they litigate in court and the court actually forces the buyer to go and close the deal anyway, irrespective of how badly they want to get out of it. The other thing to consider is reputational risk. If you are operating your business and and your main strategic, the way you operate the strategy is to be a serial acquirer. If you have a roll-up strategy and you start backing out of deals, well, that's horrible for your reputation. And the chance that anyone's going to sign a deal with you in the future is greatly, greatly reduced. So that's not only from a strategic perspective, but if private equity firms start backing out of deals, then uh, their future deal flow will be substantially hindered. The last thing that I wanted to uh, mention were potentially missed opportunities. If we go look, if we look back at the last crisis, 2008-2009, a private equity consortium was, they had a deal to buy Bell Canada, a um, phone and cable company in Canada. A huge leverage buyout and uh, credit markets turned shaky and they actually got out of the deal on this technicality in court allowed them to back out of the deal. All of them at the time were breathing a sigh of relief. However, uh, you know, in addition to the reputational hit that they took, it turned out to be a massive missed opportunity because Bell Canada's stock just went on a massive tear over the past 10 years. And if they are actually able to complete the leverage buyout, it would have been an unmitigated grand slam. They would have made an absolute boatload of money. So they really missed out by having this short-term perspective cloud really what was a tremendous long-term opportunity. So those are a number of things for investors to consider when evaluating 
evaluating M&A opportunities. And that's what I wanted to touch on in this next segment in terms of the blog post I put out this week. It was called Paradox of Choice, What to Do When It Rains Gold. And we wanted to flag for investors four areas to look at if you're looking to put cash to work. As I say, cash is trash. There's a lot of money to be made in this volatility. The first one we wanted to look at, we wanted to mention real estate investment trusts. A lot of REITs have been absolutely smoked. The market concerned about tenants not paying rent. Certainly there's going to be rent holidays. They're in for a bit of pain in the near term, but a lot of REITs dropping 30, 40, 50% or more such that they're at massive discounts to their net asset values and present uh, unprecedented, unprecedented valuations. Another area that we think is really, really rich uh, in opportunities for investors. And it's been an area, um, as you know, has been pounded. Small cap value stocks, they've really underperformed over the past 10, 11 year bear mar- or bull market. And in this bear market, they've been absolutely crushed, uh, plunging more than 40% year to date, the Russell 2000. Whereas uh, contrarians, um, value investors, people actually looking at the numbers. I read a report out of uh, OSAM, they're calling for 13% annualized returns for small cap value over the next decade. I mean, 10 years of double digit returns certainly takes a strong stomach to be able to buy small caps down here. But if you do, I believe you'll be richly rewarded. Uh, Saw another report from Verdad calling for 56% returns over the next two years from small cap value stocks. So certainly, if you're willing to take the risk, a lot of great opportunities in small cap value whose stocks have really been smoked. We've been talking about a ton merger arbitrage where we see average yields uh, now 20% annualized, even very low risk deals you can get about 10% on. And lastly, SPAC arbitrage, which is you know the, the little brother of merger arbitrage. Really, you're just buying these cash rich uh, companies that have no operations. They just hold treasuries and you can buy them at a discount to their NAV. And when they expire, you're offered a redemption at NAV. So you collect full net asset value plus interest such that you can earn spreads of five to 10% annualized. So pretty much the lowest risk trade, um, getting equity like returns with T-bill risk. What do you think? What are your thoughts on the opportunity set? And do you share the same mindset as me? Do you think it's raining gold as well? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm I'm not here to try attempt to call a bottom, but in certain pockets of the market, uh, in the general market, that is, but in certain pockets of the market, there it is undeniably a good opportunity set, set especially merger arb and spac arb. What what I would say, especially with spac arb, is you've highlighted it a little bit, but there is you know spreads over the last couple of days have been coming in, so you're no longer able to get the you know double high double digit returns in some of the in some of the stock card situations but you're still looking at between you know 5 to 10% which still is a very good spread when considering that they're as you mentioned they're just invested in in a trust in treasuries and so one thing i would mention is that when you are actually executing trades with these spacs it is important to be a little bit passive in terms of your execution because they are they can be pretty illiquid throughout the day and you know last week i saw them trading at two to three uh, percent bid ask spreads, which is a pretty pricey cost cost of tra- trading cost. 
So that's one thing to consider when trading these is to be very smart about your your actual trading and knowing what the return is that you're wanting to to get and you know being being a little bit uh, passive in terms of the execution. But you know, similar to my question about uh, merger arb, Julian, you know, it, when you're looking at backs, are you considering any of the upside potential in these arb situations, or are you just strictly looking at that cash and nav amount? Oh, certainly the upside optionality, that's just free money. If you can put on a trade where you're earning a 5% baseline annualized return, and then the SPAC, what what can happen is in a normal environment, say things normalize, if a SPAC announces a good deal and investors come rushing in, you saw it on um, that space deal, right? What was uh, Richard Branson's... uh, uh, and Chamath's Virgin deal. Galactic. Yeah, Virgin Galactic, which just absolutely skyrocketed. Uh, if you own SPAC units, which uh, it can convert to shares plus warrants, you can get warrants in the SPAC as well, you would have had a massive home run on that, just on that upside optionality on a good deal. So your worst case is buying at a d- discount and redeeming should the deal, should the market not be receptive to the deal that the SPAC announces. And by deal, we, we're talking about the acquisition of a private operating company. And so that's something to keep in mind as well. There's additional upside optionality on the SPAC arbitrage trade such that you know you can have it trade far above net asset value if the market is really liking the uh, deal that the SPAC announces. So that's something to keep in mind. We do believe that there's great pockets of opportunity in this market. We're not saying, oh, uh, you know, markets, uh, the market indices have bottomed or that those those offer tremendous value. Certainly be selective in uh, your security selections. And, um, you know, these are just a few asset classes. I'm sure there's a lot more that we're not closely following that could offer some pretty significant investment opportunities. I know that the distressed debt market basically quadrupled over the past week as there's a lot of uh, fallen angels, a lot of bonds and loans that have declined to less than 80 cents on the dollar. So investors, stay sharp. But that's about it for us on the Absolute Return podcast for this week. If you liked it, you can always check out more at absolutereturnpodcast.com. You should definitely check out Mike on Twitter. Your handle is M underscore Tesla. And mine is at Julian Klamochko, K-L-Y-M-O-C-H-K-O. What can you expect for next week? Well, more volatility, more crazy economic numbers, and uh, probably more stimulus from central banks and governments. But until next week, we wish you all the best in your investing, and we'll chat with you soon. Cheers. Thanks for tuning in to the Absolute Return Podcast. This episode was brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. The views expressed in this podcast are the personal views of the participants and do not reflect the views of Accelerate. No aspect of this podcast constitutes investment, legal, or tax advice. Opinions expressed in this podcast should not be viewed as a recommendation or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any securities or investment strategies. The information and opinions in this podcast are based on current market conditions and may fluctuate and change in the future. No representation or warranty, expressed or implied, is made on behalf of Accelerate. As to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast. Accelerate does not accept any liability for any direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage suffered by any person as a result of relying on all or any part of this podcast, and any liability is expressly disclaimed.